right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 12, Israel was the children of Israel, Hebrew slaves, were about to depart from the land of Egypt. And God gave them two festive ceremonies to observe. That is the feast of Passover, as well as the feast of unleavened bread. And because they were so closely connected to one another, the Passover being celebrated on Aviv 14th and unleavened bread for seven days to be celebrated beginning on the 15th. Later on in Jewish observances, they were observed basically as one and the thought or the reference to Passover or unleavened bread was inclusive of both of them. But nevertheless, so those were the observances that we had in chapter 12. Each of them had to do with a reflection of the slavery in Egypt, the Hebrew slavery in Egypt and God's great hand of deliverance from Egypt. And so the unleavened, I'm sorry. So Passover was resembling of the deliverance by the death of the firstborn of all Egyptians. And so therefore there was the commemoration of the Passover celebration. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a commemoration of observance in the sense that how should we therefore look at what God has done in his great deliverance? So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a responsive respond to God's deliverance. And that was the basic idea. Plus, as we dealt with both of these feasts, feasts, we talked about how they identified with the works of Jesus himself as the Passover lamb indicative of God's passing over death, passing over the Israelite in bringing about their redemption. It speaks of what Jesus has done for us. Death passes us over because Jesus took our place. He was that substitutionary lamb What the John the Baptist called him the lamb of God. And so therefore Jesus became this great substitutionary lamb on behalf of those who believe in him with this in mind. And this provided for us, what salvation, how as the apostle Paul talked about in his epistles, how shall we respond to this great salvation? Or as Paul once said, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, God forbid. So how do we respond? We respond with unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of sinlessness, to live a sinless life, a life without sin in response to the saving grace of God. And then finally, the last thing that he talked about in chapter 12, with respect to the mixed multitude, that is, there will be Gentiles, non-Jews, who may be believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believers in the Jewish God, and therefore they too, these Gentiles, will want to observe the Passover, unleavened bread. So then what should they do? Like there is a law for the Jew, that is, every Jew who partakes of the Passover celebration as well as unleavened bread must be circumcised. Same law for the Gentile, all Gentiles who wish to observe. And you'll see that time, see the word sometimes draw near to God. But all Gentiles who wish to observe these feasts also must be circumcised. 
And that basically sums up everything that is going on in chapter 12. Now, also in chapter 12, we dealt with the issue of the final plague, the death of the destruction of, of the Egyptian firstborn struck the Egyptians and Pharaoh's calling for Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and asking them along with Pharaoh's servants, pleading with Moses and the Israelites to depart. In other words, just get out of here, leave as soon as possible. And therefore that's why you saw the whole issue about no bread being leavened, even though there was uh, respect for that in unleavened bread. And what I mean is God told them not to leaven the bread, but go back and look at uh, the videos, three videos that I did on chapter 12. It explains all of that completely, but the scenario, let's get back to the scenario. Let's turn on the movies, movies in our head. The children of Israel have been told to leave. They left Egypt and spoiled Egypt, the silver and the gold and the clothing in massive amounts from the Egyptians. And they, they moved from Ramesses to Sukkot. So they got they gathered together and, and they were used terms like as according to their host. When it says host, it basically means like armies. It doesn't mean, and we'll talk about that probably in chapter 13 as well, that they were armed in a military sense. It just meant that they left out in an organized sense. God does everything with organization. That is a beautiful concept to always remember, even though I won't get into it at this point. That's why the Bible says by Paul in the book of first Corinthians 14, let all things be done decent and in order. God does not do things by the fly. There's always an orderly way to do things, always a set way to approach God, always a set way to worship God. God does not leave anything up to us in our approach unto him and things that he receives. He'll only receive that which he has commanded. In other words, do it like he says, or he will reject what you are doing. He will reject your offering. Ask Cain, ask Cain. But anyway, I wasn't supposed to go there. So they are gathered in Sukkoth in an orderly way. And now this is the 15th of Nisan, Abib, Nisan, same month. And remember, this is the first of the month for their religious calendar, the 15th. And they are now gathered in their, in their host, like I told you, organized way and preparing to leave completely on out of Egypt. Okay. And with that idea of movement outside of Egypt, first day of deliverance, we now get into chapter 13. Hopefully it shouldn't be too long with this, but nevertheless, I'm not going to rush it so that you guys will get the complete understanding. I know that you want 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every, of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast. It belongs to me. Okay, now let's stop there because we'll make it clear. Here, what God is saying to Moses again, this is in response to the deliverance from Egypt. So remember what I told you about Passover. Passover is the central feast. It is the central uh, uh, ordinance that God has given 
for them to observe. And it is from the Passover that it forms the foundation for the observance of the rest of the ordinance. It's the principal one, the most important one. Whenever we finally get into the book of Leviticus, that is in chapter 23, we'll see the remainder of these ordinances, seven ordinances that God will give, but the Passover becomes principal from the which the rest of them will stem from. There will be a relationship because without the deliverance from Egypt, you have nothing. Without their deliverance from Egypt, they are still enslaved. So this speaks of the great deliverance. Okay, but nevertheless, verse number two, God tells Moses to give a special observance, that is, sanctify to him the firstborn. And this is the firstborn son from the womb of every Jewish woman is to be set apart for a service to God. Now I'll talk about that in a minute, but let me do, do this part first. Once again, this observation is over against the Passover because notice what happened in the Passover. It was the firstborn from all Egyptians, the firstborn from their children to the firstborn of their animals that God killed God killed in the 10th plague. So in a remembrance of these things, okay? So where the Egyptians receive death, the Israelites receive life. And so therefore God is commanding a commemoration of this. Israel respond to God's giving of life to you by you giving back that to service to him. So therefore God commanded that the firstborn, and we'll see later on, uh, that it was the firstborn of humans as well as the firstborn of animals that are to be given unto the Lord. And that's what he means by the term to sanctify. So let me talk about that. To sanctify simply means by, by principle, the principal understanding of sanctification simply means to be set apart for service to God. That's the idea set apart for service unto God. Now, so he is commanding that the firstborn son, this is not the daughters. Now only the firstborn son could be set apart in this manner is to be set apart for some type of religious service to God. So, now, later on, we're going to find out that's going to be in the book of Numbers, I think chapter three or four. But later on, instead of the firstborn son from every family being set apart for service to God, God is going to command that the tribe of the Levites. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Levi was the third son of Jacob. The descendants of Levi, remember Moses was a descendant of the, a, a part of the family of Levi, okay? From the descendants of Levi, that whole tribe will be taken by God to give spiritual service on behalf of the, re of the rest of the tribes, okay? So the remaining 11 tribes will, will be represented by the tribe of Levi and the Levites will perform the service at the tabernacle and the service later on in the temple. So they will be 
from the they will it will be from the Levites to give priestly service. And when I say priestly service, that is simply to serve the tabernacle or the temple and from of the Levites who will be the family of um, Aaron. Remember, it is Aaron. I know I'm probably giving too much information, but bear with me. But Aaron, Moses's brother, who is also from the tribe of Levite, from Aaron's particular line will come the priests and they will give particular service. So the general service to the tabernacle and later on the temple will come from the entire tribe of Levi. But particular service, even from those Levites, will come a unique family from the family of Aaron and they will have, they will be the priests of the, uh, priests within the family of Levites. Okay. So Levites, then from the Levites, the priests, and even so from the priestly family will be one, the high priest and the priest will be able, I guess since I've opened the door, I'll tell you the priests will have the ability to come come into the holy place where you have the showbread and um, the candelabra, the, the, the candelabra that they have to light and the altar of incense. And they will do the service there. They will uh, attend to the functions of those particular things in the holy place. But the high priest alone would be able to go into the most holy place. Or sometimes you hear people call it the holy of holies and he'll only be able to go there once a year. And that is to offer blood for repentance for himself as well as for the nation. Okay. Enough of that. But at this point, let's go back to the commentary of the text. At this point, God is telling Moses to take the firstborn son from each family. And so, and this is what is understood by Jewish tradition that the firstborn son like the and that's why I told you about the tribe of Levites. That's why I told you about that. The firstborn son of the family forms, performs some kind of priestly service. Okay. So that's what God is saying to Moses sanctified to me, the firstborn, because this firstborn son, like the Levites would do later on, later on in right now, in some capacity will perform some sort of a priestly service on behalf of the family, because we're going to find out later on it's going to be about a year later until the, the tabernacle, the first structure for worship, for congregational worship. It's going to be about a year before the tabernacle itself is constructed. So in some sense, the firstborn son will be performing a priestly service on behalf of each his own family. And that's what's going on here. And since it's going to be from every beast as well, the animal that simply means God is commanded. Remember, like like the firstborn of Egypt died and the firstborn cattle of Egypt died. God is commanding remembrance in a commemoration of this same event that the firstborn cattle of Israel. And this is to be sanctified. And what he means by sanctified, like the male, a sacrificial service unto God, the animal will be sacrificed unto God. And that's the idea. Okay. Verse number three, 
Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day is the month Abib, and you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, the Havite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days and nothing leaven shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. Okay, so let's stop there. Now, all he is basically doing is rehashing once again what he talked about in a sense of the feast of unleavened bread. Remember we said how Passover and unleavened bread closely connected and basically observed in a, in, a, in a singularity, okay? So Moses is simply saying to the people to commemorate that day. And we know that those days were commemorated how? In the Passover celebration at twilight, the killing of the lamb. That day is commemorated by what? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is, no leaven is to be put into the bread and to be seen in all the land of Israel for seven days. And we talked about once again, the spiritual significance of both Passover and unleavened bread. But the idea here is concentrating more on unleavened bread. That is because of what unleavened bread begins on the 15th Passover 14th of Abib unleavened bread 15th of Abib. And this is the highlight for this particular section here for why it is the 15th that the Lord began to bring them out of Egypt. And so therefore he says, remember this day, remember the feast of unleavened bread. And all he is basically doing is emphasizing and always remember guys, whenever there is emphasis means to take notice of it, to take notice of it. And also to, Remember what unleavened bread is all about. Unleavened bread simply means, and I'm giving you the spiritual significance now, how you live. How should you live without leaven? Leaven is the indication of sin. How long is the feast of unleavened bread? For seven days. Seven is a signifies uh, longevity. The idea is forever or for the rest of your life. So bring it together. How should we, how should we remember the Passover, the death of the lamb, the death of Jesus by living lives without sin? How long for the rest of your life? This is emphasized. Why? Of the importance or other words, as Paul would teach in his epistles, the importance of living a sinless life. Don't just think just because Jesus died, he paid the price that there is not an obligation to you. The emphasis on the unleavened bread, it is now necessary for us to live sinless lives. No, we could not pay for our sins, but we are required to respond to what Jesus has done by living sinless lies. So now that's why we see the emphasis that Moses is given to them. I'm emphasizing this thing unto you 
Don't let any bread be nowhere found in your land. Okay. So, and let me continue with the commentary. So as he was dealing with verse number five, and he was emphasizing that once they got into the land of promise, and he talks about the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, these are basically the Canaanite nations that are already in the land of promise that God will give to them once they get into the promised land to remember to observe this ritual, Passover, unleavened bread, perpetually to always on a yearly basis to observe this ritual and is to be observed in the month that God has set aside, the month of Abib, also called Nisan, okay? And he talked about how to, to, to observe the unleavened bread, that it should be eaten. It, unleavened bread, no yeast, seven days, no yeast should be found anywhere in the land. All right, verse number eight. You shall tell your son on that day saying it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Okay. So now he says this observance of unleavened bread should have a visual symbol. Okay. And this is what he's saying. So the idea is the parent, the parent is to involve the son. Remember the son who, okay. Slowing it down. Still dealing with the idea of the firstborn son. Okay. So this is a teaching tool that is to be used as the firstborn son here is to be set apart for usage by God. That's what it means to sanctify. We've dealt with all of that. Okay. As he is set apart. So through him, this is a teaching tool for all of their children. Okay. And the parent is to bring about, he's kind of like to start this conversation with the son, with the children as a memorial. This you're commemorating something, commemorating their great deliverance. So he said, you're going to tell your son, is it because your son and the idea is asking a question, dad, what is all of this about in the same sense uh, in the Passover? We talked about the Passover and the full questions. Why do we do these things? Why is this day different? Why do we eat unleavened bread? Why do we eat bitter herbs? Why do we eat? Why do we recline at the table? Why do we lay down? So same way, the commemoration with the questions being asked from the son, from their children. Why? And so how is this being commemorated as a sign? And now this is what we call, it is called tefillim, tefillim, and sometimes referred to as phylacteries. And this is basically this box that is, that the Jews would wear on their forehead. It's like a black box that the Jews would wear. And inside the black box, I think are four scriptures from some, from some, from Exodus, as well as the book of Deuteronomy. So these phylacteries that they would wear, this box with scriptures written inside of them, okay, on little pieces of paper inside the box, as well as on the left arm, okay, they would wear this little thing on the left arm, and they would wear this during times of prayer. And this was basically called the tefillim, or later on it would be called uh, Gentiles especially, would call it phylacteries, all right? 
Now, and they would wear this as a sign. Now, it is, uh, okay, let me just finish the commentary. So this would be on the, what it said, on the hand, they would wear it on the arm, and on the forehead, literally the Hebrew text says, between your eyes, but on the forehead, they, they, this would be a visual symbol. And this would signify, verse number nine, that the law of the Lord would be in your mind, okay? Remembering, once again, this is a symbol of how the Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, this goes, this goes to show the significance of the importance of the, de the deliverance. Passover, unleavened bread. This is the most important one. And so therefore, God is commanding them to observe it in this manner. Now, two points. Let me bring out these two points concerning verse number nine. This to serve as a sign. Did God intend for them to make a visual sign that the 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 phylacteries, the box worn on the forehead or on the arm with these verses in, in, in it? OK, did God intend for it to be that way? It doesn't seem that way. OK, it doesn't seem that way even though this is what they did do, okay? But the practice is not frowned upon. By doing this, there's nothing wrong with them actually taking the boxes and putting them on themselves in this manner, all right? The only issue you'll have when you get to the New Testament, you'll see Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his time, about them wearing it, and Jesus spoke negatively of it because they wore it so big. And the reason why they wore it so big is because they were trying to get the attention of other people because it was a self-righteous act of these religious leaders so that people can look at the box and not a little small box, big old box sitting on the head or whatever. And people will begin to think, oh, he is really deep. He's really religious. And so all of this is come to draw the praise of men and Jesus truly frowned on that, that people did not care for the praises that come from God, but they cared about the praises that came from men. So it was basically an act of self-righteousness and aggrandizement in that sense. So Jesus frowned not on the box itself, but that they made it so big trying to get the attention of other people to make them think that they were so religious. Okay. So that was the issue with that. Now, Second thing concerning this phylactery to feel them that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Now, what is interesting here is notice we are in Exodus uh, chapter 13 right now. So the law of Moses in totality has not been given. So this assumes all of God's law that God speaks now and God will later on speak. So let me make it clear. Create these phylacteries, okay? So that the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. The law that you have now, that is, that which God has commanded you at this point, keep that in your mouth, as well as that which God will command you later in totality. So it seems to assume that there is a commandment of God that they have already, already, as well as the commandment of God that God will give them. That is the complete law of Moses, all 613 commandments. So by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, the death of Moses, that will be 
the full Torah, the first five books of the law that God will give you to keep and to remember and observe. And therefore you will find in these so-called phylacteries, it will be from the law of Moses that they will inscribe these scripts. Because remember, part of the, the thing will come from Exodus. That will be from text of scripture will be from Exodus. The greater majority will come from the book of Deuteronomy. At this time, Deuteronomy is not even given. So it assumes a law that you already have and the law that you will have later on in totality. Okay, so let me go on because I don't want to babble, but I do want you to understand those intricacies that are involved. Because when you say the law, the law at this particular point hadn't been completely given yet. Okay, so these will be devices that... Uh, when I say devices, things that God will command for them to do that will help them to remember. Later on, you'll see God giving other devices like the seat seat. That is the little tassels that should hang from the garments of their clothes that should touch their legs every time that they walk and, and with certain colors on these garments. And this whole idea is to remind them of the commandment of God. Remind them every time it touch their leg. Remember to walk in God's law, to walk in God's way, to keep God's commandment. So all of these things will become devices to help them to remember, keep the law of God at all times. Okay. And that's why we have here the phylacteries. All right. This is getting too long. So let me move on. Verse number 10. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord, but every first offspring of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem it. Okay, so this part is easy. All, we, all Moses is doing is emphasizing and giving clarity concerning this firstborn that is to be offered up unto the Lord. And so he simply says, so once you come into the land of the Canaanites, you're going to devote to the Lord. And I like that. You see, in verse number 12, let me slow it down. I, I try not to make it too long, guys. That's why I kind of start talking fast. But verse number 12, you shall devote that word devote in Hebrew actually is the basically the word Passover. It's the word of our, which means to pass over. So as he's talking about giving the, the firstborn son and the firstborn animal to God, you can clearly see that it is tied over to the Passover event that they celebrated in Egypt. It's, it's directly tied to it because the word he uses is Passover. So as God passed over the Israelites home, but he killed the firstborn of Egypt. So you pass over your firstborn son and you pass over your firstborn of your animals to God. You devote them to God. And that's all he's pretty much saying here. The first that that opens the womb, males only. That's what verse number 12 says. So that's why it's not the females. 
only the males can be. The firstborn male is to be devoted unto God. And then he says concerning the donkey, the reason uh, because most most animals within the Jewish care would be mostly clean animals. OK, except for the donkey, you would work with the donkeys, you would ride on the donkeys. But the donkeys we'll see later on is an unclean animal. And therefore, the unclean animals cannot be devoted into service unto God. It's unclean. It's, you know, it's ritually unclean. And so therefore, there needs to be a substitute for the donkey. And that's what he's talking about in verse number 13. So no donkey. But what you'll do is you will substitute, redeem, redeem the donkey. You're going to redeem it by, okay, by substituting it with a lamb or a goat. So you give a lamb or a goat in place of the donkey. But if a person is not willing to redeem the donkey by giving a good, the best, you want to give your best lamb or your best goat unto God, then which will be uh, a sacrifice. That's what it's going to be, right? A sacrifice to God. If they don't want to redeem it with the best of your lamb or goat, break the donkey's neck. Okay. And the idea behind that is this. Remember, firstborn son, firstborn animal to be sanctified, set apart to service to God. That's the idea. Service to God. The, the animal is to be given as a sacrifice unto God. If a person does not want to give up the donkey, because remember, the donkey is, an, is a work animal. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a work animal. And they say, okay, I want to keep my donkey. I want, I want to, so I can ride on it or work on it or whatever. Okay. Okay, fine. You give the lamb a goat. You give on your best. Okay. Say friends, you're not willing to do that. Then you take the donkey and break his neck. You kill the donkey. And what God is simply saying is this. If you are unwilling to give it in service to God, you are not to receive service from it either. So, Either give it in service to God or it will give no service at all. Okay, once again, reflecting on the Passover, it is very significant in the sight of God. And if you don't give it, then it should die. All right. But let me move on. 14. And when it and it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It, it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice. See it now. I sacrifice to the Lord, the males, the first, the first offspring of every womb. But every firstborn of my sons, I redeem. Okay, we'll talk about that. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. So with powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, so again, the picture once again, theater in your mind. The child looking at the, 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 on the arm, that box on the head, the box. What, what does all of this mean? It gives opportunity of the father to say that. And this phylacterist is only worn by the males, only worn by the males. Forehead, left arm. It gives opportunity for the child to look and say, 
Why are you doing these things to go back and rehearse what God did in delivering them from the land of Egypt? Again, do not how this is constantly being emphasized, which tells us of the significance and the importance of the Passover as well as unleavened bread of the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians in bringing about their deliverance. So this is that's why. Passover is central to the rest of these things. Okay. And so he speaks about that and how God to remind the children. Remember the child will ask, what is the meaning of this? And so therefore he says, for this reason, God did these things in bringing us out. And therefore there will be a redemption for the sons. Okay. I'm back. I'm back at verse number 13 when it says, uh, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Okay. Again, this is what I'm speaking of, of the firstborn son to be given in some form of a priestly service to God. But in the event, the firstborn son is not given in a priestly service. That son is to be redeemed. And that speaks of all that stuff that I just got through telling you guys. I hope you understood it in the book of numbers, how the son can be redeemed with a payment of a price, the five shekels of silver. Okay. And that speaks of the redeeming, but all other, that's the sense that he is given of the firstborn son been set aside in some sense of a priestly service for the family. This this is temporary until the tabernacle is set up until the tribe of Levites are taken by God as a whole. And they will give this service unto God. But in the meantime, the firstborn son is to serve in some sense of a priestly uh, performing priestly duties. OK, I hope you I hope I made that clear. Now, let's finish this chapter. Verse 17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. OK, so let me deal with that point. So now as they were coming out from Sukkoth, remember, they started in the city of Ramses, ended up in Sukkoth. So now as they are journeying from Sukkoth on their way to the promised land, all this is saying to us is God did not lead them by the shortest way into. Remember, they're going to Mount Sinai. That's where they're going. So God did not lead them to the shortest route, but God led them in a sort of a circular pattern. He circled around a particular route and through the land of the Philistines. OK. And the reason why God did that is he avoided the road of the, the Egyptian king. OK, it was on this road that the, the kings of Egypt would have fortified cities along the way. 
and the garrisons, the little place where you have military soldiers along the way. Okay. This would have been the shorter route, but they would have come in contact with Egyptian military, with Egyptian soldiers. And so God said, if the people saw these Egyptian soldiers, they would become afraid in having some sort of a clash with the Egyptian soldiers. And if they did that, they would say, no, and we're not going to try to fight with the Egyptians because we are not prepared for war. And they would just simply turn around and go straight back to Egypt. So God avoided having anything to do the people with these Egyptians garrisons or fortified cities. So he led them a long way around towards, I think it's a South Eastern easterly direction. I believe it is, but it was the red sea. Now here we say the red sea, literally, literally the sea of reeds. So God led them around in a sort of a circular pattern to avoid seeing the Egyptian military. And that's all that's going on here. And also we know that in Genesis chapter 50, uh, Joseph had told them that God would surely come back and bring the people into the land of promise. And therefore he made the sons of Israel take a vow to take his bones and bury his bones back in the land of promise. And Joseph was, but I think it's in Joshua, what, 24 or something like that, where they took the bones of Joseph and buried Joseph's bone in his inheritance in Shechem. Okay. All right. And so they also took with them the bones of Joseph. Now, an additional comment uh, in Acts chapter seven, I believe it was, uh, Stephen also told us that not only was the bones of Joseph taken, but Stephen implied strongly in a statement that the bones of the rest of the sons of Israel were taken and buried into the lands of Canaan. And, and, and I don't want to get into that, but it's, I think it's Acts chapter seven, verses 15 and 16. I think it's verse 16 where he uses the plural pronoun and they took their bones, which means that not only the bones of Joseph, but also the bones of the other sons of Jacob were taken as well. But here explicitly it talks about the bones of Joseph were taken from Egypt into the, uh, along with them on the journey and buried in the land of Canaan. Okay, let's close it. Then verse number 20, they set out from Sukkoth. Remember, that's what I told you that they were encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Okay. So now as we close this chapter, we talk about the continual presence of the Lord. Now, it's been long, I know, and I don't want to preach. I don't, but this is important to remember. All right. All right. Here's why I wanted to preach. The people are going to complain. They're going to show their butts and all of that stuff. But nevertheless, in all of the complaints of the people, God is showing his presence. God is always there. He will always provide. So if you wanted to know, is God with us? All you had to do was look up and there you will see a visible manifestation of the presence of God. 
This is the Shekinah glory as a light in the cloud, a light in the cloud. It, and it also shows God's nurturing and care for the people. The light in the cloud perform, will provide uh, uh, coolness from the heat in the wilderness. And at, light, and at night, you're going to find out, especially in the book of Numbers, it's going to provide warmth in the middle of the night, in the coldness of the desert. Because it gets cold in the wilderness and desert at night. God provides shade in the day. He provides warmth at night. God's continual presence for his people and his provision for his people. But not only that, his direction, because we're seeing, we're going to see this strongly. I believe it's in Numbers chapter nine, I believe that this cloud will, will provide direction for the people. Now I'm a little premature, but still let me say it because it's bringing it out right here at no given time. Because sometimes you'll see even in the Bible, in heads of your Bible, and you hear people say Israel wandered in the wilderness. To the sense of wondering gives the sense of I don't know where I'm going. We're lost. They were never lost. God led them the entirety of the 40 years in the wilderness. And he led them by the presence of the Shekinah glory, which indicates the presence of God in the cloud. So therefore, what this part is simply saying is God manifesting his presence in a cloud day and night. He never left them. And it was God who led them, as we're going to talk about in the book of Numbers, for the entirety of their 40 years in the wilderness. He was always there. Kind of makes me want to think about a song that I used to hear and a song that I personally do like. He's there all the time. And this is the idea for them. God is there for them, leading them out all the while, all the time. Okay. All right. That's enough with chapter 13. I hope you guys understood some of the points that I was bringing about with the substitution of the firstborn. And I know it can, it can get kind of thick when you start talking about those priestly functions of certain things especially before you get to them in the book of Numbers and Leviticus. And, and that's why I, I wanted to touch on it, even though we are far from Leviticus and Numbers at this time. But I hope you understood it. But anyway, guys, thanks for joining me on that. Join me next time as we move into chapter 14 and we start dealing with the issue of Pharaoh changing his mind and coming after the children of Israel and God having his ultimate vengeance upon Pharaoh with the death of Pharaoh and the greater part of his army. See you there.